I asked David and Jim if they would start this conversation by sharing a memory or a reflection of when they knew as an adult that they had deeper work to do around decentering their own whiteness. Now, CRA did the assignment wrong because I did it when I was a kid. No, but, but I've been back since, so I, yeah, okay. I always get it wrong, but. About five uh, miles from my family farm in the southern tip of Illinois, there's an old church graveyard. In that graveyard at the extreme northern edge, almost in a cornfield, is a tiny gravestone flat on the ground that says Aunt Emma. Now, I know y'all say aunt up here, but we, we, we say aunt, Aunt Emma. And that's all it says. It's a little stone about like that, flat on the ground. No birth or death dates. Now, when I was a kid, my dad would stop from time to time and put a flower on Aunt Emma's grave. Now, in those days, there was a wire fence between the graveyard and her grave. But over the years, that has rotted down, as uh, did the church, and they're both gone now. Aunt Emma is purported to be the first African-American buried in the state of Illinois. Now, purported because no one really knows when she died or any of the circumstances. It was probably sometime in the 1820s or 1830s. That grave has always haunted me, if you will. Aside from the segregation that that placement reflected, here was a human being whose humanity has been totally erased. Her name, her name wasn't aunt, I assume. Her name, where she lived, where she came from, how she died, when she died, everything about her has been erased and can never be recovered. The first humanist value is that no human being should ever be treated as a means rather than an end. Does that make sense? As a means rather than an end in themselves. A tiny old church graveyard graphically encapsulates for me the full horror of what human beings are capable of doing to each other. Understanding white supremacy and structural racism is the work of a lifetime, the work of my lifetime, and the work that I see as essential for me to do to be a full member of the human community. I was born with a number of privileges, but growing up in a hyper-segregated community disadvantaged me in my understanding of whiteness. I didn't have a meaningful conversation with a black person or a Jewish person until I was in college. I had a lot of work ahead of me. One of my majors was US history, but it was almost entirely the history of white America taught by white men. I got a little bit woke in a class called Mass Media and Minorities, which highlighted a few, just a few of the structural discrepancies in our society. And coming out as gay woke me a little bit more to the reality that the laws and the systems of our country are designed to benefit a very narrow slice 
of the population. I did some front row learning around race, volunteering on and off for about 15 years with two African-American families. I could pretty quickly see what I didn't see in history class. The line all the way back to pre-Civil War slavery was very clear and how generations of these families never had a chance anything like the chances I have had. I watched helplessly as the machinery of America ground up these people I loved. Poverty, AIDS, and the prison industrial complex shortened their lives. I learned a lot, but I still had more work to do to understand the world and my role in it. Fortunately, my preparation for ministry had an intersectional lens and it had intentionally diverse faculty, and it helped fill in some of the gaps of my earlier educational experiences. I read some James Baldwin, some Anthony Penn. I learned from black female theologians. I finally came to fully understand things like the multi-generational urban catastrophe of redlining, and the 400-year success of pitting poor white people against poor black people which is we're still working stunningly well in the politics of the present day. Right after the most recent presidential election, it was clear that I still had more work to do. I was stunned by the outcome, but an African-American friend of me told me that she was not at all surprised. She had understood on a visceral daily level just how alive racism and sexism still are in our country. And to her clear eyes, a majority of white people electing a bragging practitioner of sexual assault and racism was just the latest in 500 years of business as usual. It's as important as ever for me to understand my role in dismantling white supremacy because racism is the persistent poison that makes authoritarianism possible. White supremacy and fascism are marching forward hand in hand. I'm so grateful to be in this work, in this time, with you. Thank you, Jim and David. As I've said before, I grew up in Paris, Texas, and um, always thought of my family as uh, one of the liberal families. Back when I was growing up, it wasn't as divided um, in terms of politics as it is today. My granddaddy thought that uh, FDR and JFK were about the best things that could happen, and he was proud to pay both his white field hands and his black field hands the same wage. But it was here in St. Paul that I was in a theater um, maybe 10 years ago. It was a play about Ida B. Wells called Constant Star. Ida B. Wells was an African-American journalist. She was born a free woman in a slave state, and she was fierce. And she told the story of lynching in the United States. She told the stories that no other paper was writing, and her, her paper wrote this. So here I am sitting in uh, at Park Square Theater, nice evening out with some friends, and we were listening to this story about Ida B. Wells Barnett, and the word Paris, Texas comes up about one of the most heinous and largest spectacles of lynching that is recorded in the United States. 10,000 people came 
to the fairgrounds in Paris, Texas, to see the lynching of one Henry Smith. It knocked me back in my seat. It took my breath away, because that's where I was from. I was a child of this town, and not once had I ever heard of this. This wasn't the history that I was taught. And I'd done a fair amount of anti-racism stuff. I was a good, you know, uh, upright, well-thinking liberal, and I said all the right things. But in that moment, my privilege had a place and an actual event tied to it. I could go anywhere in my town that I wanted to, except you shouldn't go to the bad side of town. But people that I grew up with, we integrated when I was in the second grade. My classmates never wanted to go to the fair. My African-American classmates never wanted to go to the fair, and I never knew why. And now I know. And now I know. The quote that is at the top of our order of service, racism is deeply complex and nuanced. And given this, we can never consider our learning to be complete or finished. So I say we're starting, starting, a new deep dive into anti-racism and decentering whiteness this year at First Unitarian Society, but that's not really true. We're restarting. We're diving in again. We're coming with new eyes in this media age. In this age when stories continue to be lifted up. And we're going to do our work. And we're going to attempt to do our work without shame. I'm in the no shame game. I said this earlier. We're going to try to do this without shame. But we need help. And to this end, we have invited an expert. We've invited Dr. Ann Phibbs. Ann and I have gotten to know each other a bit. And we've talked about where this congregation is, who we are, how we operate. Ann is a diversity trainer with over 25 years experience. She has been at the university, she was at the University of Minnesota for many years, uh, training in diversity and equity and inclusion um, across departments. And then other organizations began to know what she did. And so um, she began to be asked to do things for corporations and for nonprofits and for government groups and various things. And so now Anne has her own uh, shop, as we say, strategic uh, diversity initiatives, right? You can find more about her at strategicdi.com hear about what she's doing. She's going to speak to us today, and then we will have three workshops on three Saturday mornings spread out through the year, October, January, March. You'll get those dates. You don't have to go to every one of them. We hope you will, but if you miss one, you can come to the others. I'm so excited about this work, and I don't know what we'll find out. We're going to get I'm just going to say it. We're going to get pissed off. We'll get mad at each other. We'll get mad at ourselves. We'll be uncomfortable. And I hope that we will be willing to be changed by what we are restarting today. Welcome, Ann Phipps.
Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, Kelly. I appreciate your introduction. And thank you, Jim and David, for, for being vulnerable and sharing some of, of who you are. Um, I got to just jump right out and say I loved everything you said, but I don't ever use the word expert, and I don't ever use the word perfection. I don't think those words work in diversity work. So I'll just put that out there. But So I just want to say thank you for inviting me. And again, thank you. Kelly and I know each other. Uh, I, um, it, it's touching because I, raise, I have three kiddos. I have a little four-year-old, but I have two grown kids. And I raised them at um, First Universalist. So um, all the, you know, the, the things you were singing came back to me. But it's also kind of touching for me to be here because I'm a preacher's kid or theological offspring, as we would sometimes say. My, my dad uh, was a UCC minister, and so uh, I grew up with literally the church as a playground, and the sanctuary in particular was always really fun to run around in. Um, but but I, it is a little daunting to be up here, and so um, when I'm training, when I'm doing workshops with you, I will not be reading from a text, but, um, but I will today just because I want to make sure I'm careful with my words as I'm, you know, in front of everybody like this. So, um, uh, it's my hope that in the coming months you'll get to know me, not just kind of a little bit about what I just shared, um, but uh, you'll know me from a different angle. Um, as your facilitator in a very important journey, and it's interesting because I, I do this training, as Kelly mentioned, all over the place to, you know, one minute I'm with Lutheran pastors in a basement, and then I'm with you know financial services professionals. But some of the language of faith communities or spiritual communities, I think things like journey, um, which I, I think of as that kind of language I use, I always wonder how, how it resonates, but I really do believe that this work is so much a journey. I think it's gonna be a journey, a, a, a self-reflective journey for you individually, but also very much as a community. Um, and uh, so I'm excited to be part of it. Let me share a little bit about who I am, uh, what I do, and how I approach this work. Uh, I moved to Minnesota 30 years ago so I could pursue my, get a PhD in philosophy and feminist studies at the University of Minnesota. And along the way, I had those two kids uh, and, uh, and uh, fell in love with Minnesota and decided to stay. And so I spent 11 years at Metropolitan State University I was the first ever GLBT student services director, and I also taught there. And then I moved over for another 11 years to the University of Minnesota, where I was uh, the director of the GLBTA programs office. And at the time that we, that it's now called the Gender and Sexuality Center for Queer and Trans Life, because everything changes, as it should. Um, but back then, it didn't have the A, and we added the A, because a lot of my work focuses on ally development, on how we develop allies. I'll be talking more about that. Um, but my last six and a half years at the, at the U of M, I was the director of education in the Office for Equity and Diversity, as Kelly mentioned. And I, um, they had never had anyone who, who was going to kind of create an educational product, if you will, to move, to build people's capacity. Because it's my firm belief that the vast majority of people want to be inclusive, want to be equitable, want to be anti-racist, want to challenge misogyny and homophobia, et cetera, et cetera, but often don't quite know how. And so I developed, a, with my colleagues, a certificate program, a series of 10 workshops, three hours each, 30-hour curriculum that's still going strong. And then, as Kelly mentioned, people started saying, hey, can you bring this uh, out? And so that's what I do. Um, so along with my colleague, Hannah Carney, um, who works with me, we've developed workshops and, and deliver them around. Um, the content's obviously different depending on, I mean, what content I deliver 
depending on the context. Um, we gotta find where I am because I was ad-libbing and that's a bad idea if you're trying to do this. Okay, so note to self, do one or the other, okay. Um, <laughs> but the goal is the same, why don't I just start right here? To understand how bias, both implicit and explicit, exclusion, inequity, discrimination, and oppression cause pain, trauma, and disconnection, and how all of us, whatever our lived experience and social identity, can work every day as allies to heal this pain to address and minimize bias, and to build truly authentic relationships and communities. And let me make a quick note here about the use of the word ally. If that word doesn't work for you, throw it out and use another. Advocate, supporter, accomplice, someone just told me about co-conspirator. It's only a placeholder. It's a way to remind us that every single one of us can and must be part of this work, even if we have privilege, if we're white or male, heterosexual, cisgender, if we don't live with a disability, if we're middle class, if we were raised Christian. This is still and always will be our work. And this gets to my approach in the work. I think some people approach diversity work and racial equity work by wanting to know about those people over there. So they sometimes ask me, how can I help my students of color be more uh, successful in my class? Or what does my workplace need to do to be prepared for an employee who identifies as transgender or non-binary? Or how can we make our space accessible for people with disabilities? And these questions are important, but they aren't the only questions. And they point out a particular challenge to the work of diversity and inclusion and to the work of racial equity. When we have privilege, we tend to see social identities in marginalized others, but not ourselves. So it's people of color who bring race in the room. It's women who bring gender to the discussion. It's people like me who identifies as lesbian or queer, part of the LGBTQ community, who make sexual orientation and gender identity visible. But actually every single one of us brought race in the room today. Even in a room filled only with white people, and there are too many rooms like that still in Minnesota, race is very much present and it's very much at play. But it's our marginalized identities that stick to us in ways that our privileged identities never will. So as a lesbian, I'm the one with a homosexual agenda. But my twin sister, who's also raising kids and holding down a job and doing laundry and all the things we do, she'll never be accused of having a heterosexual agenda. And I, as a white person, will never be accused of playing the race card. It's people of color who will be accused of that. And if I said, I'm glad you didn't pop next door, wherever that is, let's say the Walker, right? Where they're having a big gender conference. Honestly, how many of you would think they were talking about men, right? So an important piece of social justice work and racial equity work is to shift from a focus on how can I help them, which also very much fulfills our need to fix problems, which is admirable, especially like if something's leaking, right? But not always helpful in this work. So how do my social identities, my race, gender, class, sexual orientation, gender identity, disability, shape who I am? And how has privilege impacted my life? How does it continue to impact my life? It's not uncommon that when I deliver workshops, someone will say, because someone did just the other day, I found the history of racial inequity interesting and important, but I wanna move forward. I wanna figure out what we can do to change things. And let me say that I think that's an important impulse. Wanting to make things better is always a good impulse. But for racial equity work, it can be putting the cart before the horse. Because if eliminating racism was easy, we'd have done it. If we only needed a really good checklist and a core of committed volunteers, we'd have done it. If we just needed a brilliant analysis of white supremacy and a deep history of racial inequity, 
we'd have done it. We have those things, and we still have profoundly deep and entrenched anti-blackness and racism. Now let me be clear, I very much want to help you as a community get to the what do we do, part of social justice and racial equity work. That is the goal, to act individually and as a community in ways that work against bias, exclusion, and injustice, and in ways that creates more access, more inclusion, and more justice. I just believe we only get there through a deep understanding of how our racial identity impacts every part of our life. And while some of us might be really happy if I said we could get there by reading some great books or brilliant articles, remember I'm trained as a philosopher, so we thought that would solve everything, right? I think this work is at its core about being in relationship and community with each other. It's about looking at ourselves through a racial equity lens together. It's about having tough conversations where we might not, and Kelly did a great job of queuing this up, not get, might not get everything right, where there might be misunderstandings and hurt feelings, but we hang in there and keep going. And this is a really important point I want to make. And it's about shifting vulnerability. In a culture where white supremacy and white privilege are the norm, white people like me are raised to feel comfortable with the vulnerability of people of color. And that's hard to say out loud, because it's painful, um, but I believe it's true. So we expect that our colleague of color will bring up racial issues at work, and that if we're a good white person, we'll support them. But white people have not been taught, I don't believe, either explicitly or through mentoring and modeling how to be vulnerable around race. In fact, I would argue we loathe it. <laughs> We do everything we can to avoid being seen as racist or, God forbid, being told we're doing something racist. And I imagine a number of you have been reading, of course, the work of Robin DiAngelo, who's been saying important things about white fragility. And let me be clear, everything Robin DiAngelo says or I say about race, racial equity and white fragility and white supremacy, all of it we learn from people of color um, who've been saying it to white people for hundreds of years. So I want to share a story about vulnerability and about shifting vulnerability. I had the um, fortune, good fortune, of being in a um, uh, seminar with Lee Munwa from the West Coast. He's out in California, and he runs stir-fry seminars and consulting, and he does a lot of work, work uh, around racial equity. And he told a story in this, in this setting I was in about a time he was facilitating a discussion on race. There were four people of color and four white people in this small group, and while they were talking about race, they had hit an impasse. They were in conflict. So he tried to decide what to do, and he decided to stop the discussion. He told the people of color that they could ask the white people any question they wanted. The people of color chose to ask the white people, will you each tell us about a time you did something racist? The white people were nervous, but they shared as asked. Now, when I'm training, when I share this story, I often say, as a white person, that would be a very scary prospect for me to, to tell people, particularly if I don't know them very well, a time that I did something racist. Um, but as Lee Munoir continued with the story, he shared that the conversation then shifted. They moved past the conflict and connected with each other. So it might seem a little counterintuitive that in white people sharing about how they're racist, they make a more authentic connection with people of color. But I think that story is all about shifting the vulnerability. I highly doubt that the four people of color were surprised by anything the white people said, and I wonder if they cared that much about the specifics of what the white people shared. But in asking this question, it was the white people who were vulnerable about race, the white people taking the risk, the white people not knowing what might happen. That's not the traditional narrative of race in our country, and we've got to move out of our traditional narrative for things to shift. 
It's my hope that in the three workshops I'll be delivering and our three opportunities to be in community with each other around race, racism, and moving toward racial equity, we can push past the models that aren't working for us, the models of let's fix it, and models that look to people of color to be the most vulnerable. I have no doubt that many of the frames I offer in these workshops are frames many of you have encountered before. In other words, I know you know a lot of this stuff already. For those of you for whom this is true, I hope you'll still join us in the workshop. If First Unitarian Society is to do the work of racial equity, you can't afford for any member of your community to sit out, whether because they're too nervous or because they think they've already done the work. I will share as a white person, and this mimics what, uh, or what other folks have already said, that I don't think I'll ever be done with the work of being actively anti-racist. White supremacy has a hold on white people that we will spend our whole lives examining and challenging should we choose to do so. And that's how you know you have privilege. You have privilege when it's a choice. I always say you have privilege when you know you can walk away. So my job as a white person every day, because I'll never walk away from being queer. It follows me into every space. Sometimes it's more salient than others, but it's always there. But I walk into every space as a white person not having to think about race. And so my job is how do I think about race in every space I'm in? That's a lot of work. That's not something you're going to get done in a week or a semester or a, a year. It's going to be a lifetime of work. So I want to close with some wise words from someone who I consider an amazing educator, activist, and human being. Some of you, uh, I'm sure, have encountered him, Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson has spent decades challenging the racism, also classism, sexism, and ableism inherent in our criminal justice system. His book, Just Mercy, is a powerful indictment of that system, and also a call for us to be hopeful and committed to a vision of social justice. If you choose to participate in the workshops, with me, and I hope you do, every one of you. Um, we'll start our first workshop watching his TED Talk and discussing how his message about the power of identity is connected to the work you are doing here at First Unitarian Society. Sometimes I think, if nothing else, if I introduce people to that Brian Stevenson TED Talk, I've done a good thing. It's a very powerful message. In this passage from his book, Just Mercy, Brian Stevenson has just gotten off the phone with Jimmy Dill a man he had tried to save from being executed. Dill had an intellectual disability, but the Alabama court system and an ineffective defense lawyer had failed to acknowledge this fact in evaluating his crime. So he was sentenced to death. Stevenson was not able to stop the execution. So he has just spoken to Jimmy right before Jimmy is about to be executed by phone. So I'm gonna read this. When I hung up the phone that night, I had a wet face and a broken heart. The lack of compassion I witnessed every day had finally exhausted me. I looked around my crowded office at the stacks of records and papers, each pile filled with tragic stories, and I suddenly didn't want to be surrounded by all this anguish and, memory and misery. As I sat there, I thought myself a fool for having tried to fix situations that were so fully broken. It's time to stop. I can't do this anymore. For the first time, I realized that my life was just full of brokenness. I worked in a broken system of justice. My clients were broken by mental illness, poverty, and racism. They were torn apart by disease, drugs, and alcohol, pride, fear, and anger. I thought of Joe Sullivan and of Trina, Antonio, Ian, and dozens of other broken children we worked with struggling to survive in prison. I thought of people broken by war like Herbert Richardson, people broken by poverty like Marsha Colby, 
people broken by disability like Avery Jenkins. In their broken state, they were judged and condemned by people whose commitment to fairness had been broken by cynicism, hopelessness, and prejudice. I looked at my computer and at the calendar on the wall. I looked again around my office at the stacks of files. I saw the list of our staff, which had grown to nearly 40 people. And before I knew it, I was talking to myself aloud. I can just leave. Why am I doing this? It took me a while to sort it out, but I realized something sitting there while Jimmy Dill was being killed at home in prison. After working for more than 25 years, I understood that I don't do what I do because it's required or necessary or important. I don't do it because I have no choice. I do what I do because I'm broken too. For my years of struggling against inequality, abusive power, poverty, oppression, and injustice had finally revealed something to me about myself. Being close to suffering death, executions, and cruel punishments didn't just illuminate the brokenness of others. In a moment of anguish and heartbreak, it also exposed my own brokenness. You can't effectively fight abusive power, poverty, inequality, illness, oppression, or injustice, and not be broken by it. We are all broken by something. We have all hurt someone and have been hurt. We all share the condition of brokenness, even if our brokenness is not equivalent. I desperately wanted mercy for Jimmy Dill and would have done anything to create justice for him, but I couldn't pretend that his struggle was disconnected from my own. The ways in which I have been hurt and have hurt others are different from the ways Jimmy Dill suffered and caused suffering, but our shared brokenness connected us. Paul Farmer, the renowned physician who has spent his life trying to cure the world's sickest and poorest people, once quoted, some, quoted me something that Thomas Merton said, we are bodies of broken bones. I guess I'd always known but never fully considered that being broken is what makes us human. We all have our reasons. Sometimes we're fractured by the choices we make. Sometimes we're shattered by things we would never have chosen. But our brokenness is also the source of our common humanity, the basis for our shared search for comfort, meaning, and healing. Our shared vulnerability and imperfection nurtures and sustains our capacity for compassion. We have a choice. Last paragraph I'll read. We can embrace our humanness, which means embracing our broken natures and the compassion that remains our best hope for healing, or we can deny our brokenness, forswear compassion, and as a result, deny our own humanity. I had the good fortune of being in, uh, gosh, what's that auditorium called? Northrop Auditorium at the U of M when he talked about being broken. It was a very profound moment. Um, so I'm gonna end with that. I wanna thank you again for giving me this opportunity to speak to you and to engage in this important work with you. I hope to see many of you in the coming months. And in closing, I just wanna share my favorite quote, uh, the one that hangs on my wall in my little office in the basement. It's from someone very important in my development as a feminist, as an activist, and as an educator, Audre Lorde. She says, when I dare to be powerful, to use my strength in the service of my vision, it becomes less and less important whether I am afraid. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anne, for being with us, for encouraging us to increase our capacity for compassion. To increase our capacity for compassion is deeply human work. 
our compassion for ourselves, our compassion for each other, and our compassion for the world. If we are not about this work, we need to examine why we call ourselves humanists. I am so excited to step in with you. I'll just name the dates, October 27, January 19, March 16. Those dates will be advertised for the upcoming Saturday workshops.